Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eastern European History. I'm Samantha Lom, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Eric Lee about his new book, The Experiment, Georgia's Forgotten Revolution, 1918 to 1921. Uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Uh, Glad to be here. I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, okay, I I live in London at the moment, but as you can tell from my accent, I'm I'm American-born. Um, I've been interested in the subject of Georgia for more than 30 years and began writing this book when Georgia was still a Soviet republic, but the book has only been published now. Um, what else can I tell you? Why are you interested in the topic? Your introduction said that you're interested in the history of the labor movement? Yeah, well, I was, I've been on the democratic left my entire life, well, my entire adult life. Uh, starting with uh, my work in the United States, where I was an associate of someone named Michael Harrington and helped to try to revive the idea of a socialist party in America. And this later translated to working for Bernie Sanders and his campaign last year. So all my life I've been working in the labor movement, and I've seen myself as a democratic socialist, not as a, not as a communist, not as a Leninist, but of a particular kind of you know, humane, democratic, human rights-respecting socialist. So that's why Georgia interested me. Okay, and so how did you come to write this book? Well, I came upon the story of Georgia, I think, as most people do, it is a footnote to history. If you if you know your history of the Russian Revolution or your history of socialism, Georgia pops up. But I didn't know much more than anyone else. It just struck me that it was kind of odd that no one had written anything in my lifetime, book length, in English, about this. And I decided many years ago I should I should go for it and do it. But I finally completed it because having worked in the Sanders campaign last year, and Senator Bernie Sanders has been calling himself a democratic socialist. And most people, particularly most Americans, have no idea what he means by that. And many of his supporters who love the idea also have no idea what he means by it. I thought this was a good time to do a book on what actually democratic socialism actually looked like in the example of Georgia. I found your book a really fascinating counterpoint to the story of the Russian Revolution. 
the uh, 100th year anniversary is coming up next week, so I think this is very timely. You start your story with Jordania. Would you like to just tell us a little bit about him and how he differs from his better-known Bolshevik counterpart, Stalin? Yeah, well, Jordania, uh, Noah Jordania and Stalin were both Georgian Social Democrats. Jordania was the much older uh, man. They have parallel lives. They both went to the uh, Tiflis, now Tbilisi, theological seminary. They both trained to be priests. They were both kicked out. They both became Marxists. Uh, and, and they met at a certain point when Jordani was the older man and Stalin was the young acolyte, and they did not hit it off at all. Uh, Stalin fairly quickly realized that he had no no friends in the Georgian labor movement to the left, and he became a follower of Lenin. Uh, Jordania did not. He identified with the Mensheviks, who were Lenin's opponents. So these two represented kind of the two alternative models of social democracy or Marxism in Russia at that time. Jordania was the more democratic, Western European model. Stalin was was what Stalin became. I've always enjoyed the Bolshevik branding, whereas they were actually the minority, but they decided to seem more popular by taking the name Bolshevik. And you've mentioned that in Georgia, the Bolsheviks had basically no presence, that the Mensheviks really were the majority party. Yes, well, one of the stranger things is, is not just that the Bolsheviks cleverly called themselves Bolsheviks, but that the Mensheviks accepted the term Mensheviks, which they were not actually the minority even when they started using the term. Anyway, I mean, in Georgia, it was the exact opposite. In Georgia, and even we see this in the, the only free elections that Russia ever had, really, until the 1990s, was the elections to the Constituent Assembly in 1917. And in Georgia, the Mensheviks got a massive majority. The Bolsheviks were non-existent in the vote. And throughout the, the, the 20 years leading up to the revolution, the, the Mensheviks were a very powerful, very popular force in Georgia, and the Bolsheviks were, were Stalin and a couple of his cronies. So you start out the story uh, of Jordania and his followers with the 1905 revolution and the uh, Guerrilla Republic. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? <clears throat> yeah, the story actually predates the 1905 revolution. In 1905 is when Russia rose up in revolution. Georgia uh, started this, you know, they started the party early. They, um, there's, in Western Georgia, the region is known as Guria. It's a peasant region, very poor. It's where Jordania came from, not Stalin, but Jordania. And it rose up in a peasant rebellion, which was fairly common in, in the Russian Empire. The difference was they were uh, enormously successful. The peasants were unanimously supporting the rebellion. The czarist armies were kicked out. And this is like two or three years before the 1905 revolution. And they held out until 1905, 1906, when the Russian army was finally able to go in and crush them. So they established a kind of, it's kind of a dress rehearsal for 1917, but it lasted for several years and it lasted, it covered quite a large area of Georgia at the time. It reminds me of the Zemstvas in Kirov, where peasants were actively involved in local governance. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit more about maybe the institutions they created? Yeah, the institutions they created were, were observed by, by some interesting visitors who showed up, uh, including um, Nikolai Mar, who became quite a famous linguist in Soviet times, as she spent time in Guria and wrote about it, they had village uh, assemblies, village councils, but they had general meetings where uh, anyone could come and speak, including women. I mean, women's, women's suffrage existed even in those villages. And they, had, they got rid of the czarist courts and the czarist police. So the, they were basically uh, courts as well as legislative bodies. They would rule on 
uh, criminal acts, and they would their their highest punishment for someone for breaking the rules was to kind of to, to boycott them, to expel them from village life, and they were seen as these wildly democratic, direct democratic institutions. Their meetings would last often for days, and they created a, a, their own militia, a kind of red guard, and it was quite an interesting experiment. But it wasn't in any sense a modern democracy; they were too poor and too backward for that. But it was an extraordinary experiment, and it did last something like four years. It reminds me a lot of the peasant mirrors in Russia, where expulsion from the commune was also quite devastating. And even in the collective farms, where expulsion basically meant subject to higher taxes, punitive damages, punitive uh, crop procurement totals. And I've noticed in my research in Kirov, it was quite popular for collective farmers to expel people that were misbehaving, who were sleeping around, who were drunk, who got into fights as a way of punishing them. It, it was the same thing in the Gurian commune. Uh, they, drunkenness was a problem. Adultery was something they would punish quite severely. Uh, people did feel that being banned or boycotted it was the worst thing that could happen to them. And they would file appeals. And we have stories of those kinds of appeals taking place and people begging to be readmitted to the commune. It was quite similar. But let me explain what the difference was between this and all the various peasant rebellions in Russia. I think the the biggest difference that happened here was the attitude of the Social Democrats to the Gurian, they called the Gurian Republic or the Gurian Commune. The Social Democrats historically were not real big fans of the peasants and didn't see the peasants as agents of social change. But the leaders of the Social Democratic Party in Georgia, like Jordania, Mm -hmm. were themselves from Guria. And they were quite sympathetic with what the peasants were doing and discussed the burning question of whether those peasants could, could be thought of as workers, maybe agricultural workers. They came up with some term, agricultural workers. And could they then join the, the party, the Social Democratic Party, which they then allowed them to do, which meant that that party became a mass party, including you know, many, many, many thousands of peasants. This was unheard of in Russia. There was no parallel at all. The, the Russian Social Democrats were, were always, both Menshevik and Bolshevik, urban parties of urban workers. So this was quite a strong difference between what was happening in Georgia and what happened in Russia, with, where there were also peasant uprisings. Yes, Stalin remained until the end sort of negative about the peasants. I study the 1936 Constitution, and he actually makes specific changes to the Constitution that actively defranchise collective farmers. He uses wording that limits their access to vacation days, to uh, sanatoria, to limited working hours. They notice this and they are pissed, but he does that because he views the urban working class as the leading class that needs to educate and raise up the educational material and cultural levels of the peasantry. So he never views them as equal. Yeah, well, I I would say that by 1936, that would have been the nicest thing he had done to the peasants. I mean, he was his record on the Russian peasantry or in all the Soviet peasantry it's so bad. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he stands convicted by history of carrying out a genocide against not just Ukrainian peasants, but peasants all over the Soviet Union. So disenfranchisement was not even in the top 10 of his crimes against the peasantry. And he couldn't stand them. And he was coming out of a Marxist tradition. He wasn't alone in this. I mean, generally, the Marxists were quite hostile to the peasantry, but the Georgian Marxists were different. And so how does this uh, acceptance of the peasantry by the Georgian Marxists change the outcome in their revolution, does it? It changes everything. It means that when they came to power, so now we fast forward to 1917, when they stumble into power, they didn't seize power. Power fell into their hands when the 
Tsar's regime collapsed in Petrograd, it collapsed everywhere. They stumble to power and they have the full support of the peasants of all these expectations of them, as opposed to the Russian, to the Bolsheviks. I mean, when Lenin came to power, his party had no support among the peasantry and was enacting policies that were openly hostile to the peasants. The peasants in Georgia felt it was now their government, their party was in power. This was quite a different situation than in Russia. And they were a mass party. So when there were things like elections, they would do exceptionally well. They'd get 80% of the vote for their party. There were no other parties of that size in Georgia. Yeah, the Bolsheviks always had trouble connecting with the peasantry, establishing state institutions, establishing communist cells. Even into the 1930s, they're a minority in the countryside. The Komsomol tends to be their bigger organization, but even then, very few people are actively involved. So this seems like this is very different. It's the complete opposite. It, and if you look at the three years that the, the Georgians had their independent republic from 1918 to 21, it overlaps the period in, in Russia, in, in, in the Soviet Union, of, of war communism. And war communism was effectively a war between the, the urban working class led by the Bolshevik party and the, and the peasantry. They really were one at war with the other, which absolutely could not happen in Georgia because the peasants were effectively in power in Georgia with parts of the urban working class. They, really, they, were, like, they were black and white, what was happening in Georgia and Russia, particularly as regards the peasants. So let's talk a little bit about the war situation and how uh, Georgia tried to deal with the end of the war, the continuation of uh, allied and uh, Turkish aggression. Yeah, you know, what people often who know little, you know, a little bit about the Russian Revolution forget was that you can't understand the revolutions, the revolutions in Russia, without the context of, of the First World War happening. It determined everything. Georgia was on the, the southern border of the Russian Empire, up up against the, the Ottoman Empire uh, to their south. Um, and Georgia had been part of the Russian Empire because the Russians were protecting them against the possibility of Turkish or Iranian attack. So they were really on the frontier of the kind of the Christian world facing uh, largely Muslim countries. And there had been centuries of, of fighting. And the, for 100 years, the Tsar had basically secured their border. When the Tsarist regime collapsed, suddenly the Russian army was no longer protecting Georgia. And the Georgians were up against the 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 army of the Ottomans, who had not been doing very well until that moment, um, and were suddenly thrust into this World War scenario. And they found they very quickly had to make a decision because the Turkish army would have marched into Georgia and simply taken what they wanted. They began taking territories. Um, and the Georgians decided at that point, they made a very clever decision to, behind the back of the Turks, to talk to the Turks' allies, the Germans, and to discuss making Georgia into kind of a German protectorate because they would have influence over the Turks, whereas the Allies had none. It was a, a very clever move, and the Germans were basically occupying Georgia militarily for several months toward the end of the war. And why did Germany go behind Turkey's back? They were Allies. What interest did Germany have in tiny little Georgia? Germany had, uh, well, the, uh, one word answer is resources. Germany wanted two things. First, they wanted access to uh, the oil fields of, of Baku, Azerbaijan, and there was a, a pipeline from Baku to the Black Sea coast in Georgia. So they wanted to be able to control that, the railway and the pipeline. And Georgia itself has natural resources that the Germans really desperately wanted, including manganese. Georgia has fabulously large manganese mines. So it was purely that, that interest. And, it, and they, they were willing to restrain the Turks to form a kind of alliance with the Georgian government. And Georgians were going to provide them with all these things to help them win the war. But the war 
um, for them, tragically, didn't last very long. It lasted only a few months before the Germans were defeated. You noted that the Germans were very well received in Georgia. Why was that? Well, this is very strange. We'll have to talk in a moment, I guess, about the British occupiers, but the the Germans were exceptionally well-behaved. I mean, even the German Social Democrat, Karl Kautsky, who was an opponent of the war and an opponent of the regime, said it was actually a moment of uh, a pride because the German army did not come to Georgia as conquerors. They were invited by the Georgian government. They did what they said they were going to do. They did not interfere in Georgia's internal affairs. They, you know, they, they took what they needed from the country. They paid for things. Um, they set up some German language schools, things like that. But they didn't really try to influence Georgia's internal life. And so the Georgians, they liked that. They respected that. And most importantly, the Germans kept the Turks at bay. So the Turkish invasion of Georgia did not progress. Georgia retained its territory. So how does this compare with the British? Again, night and day. I have to find, I have to find a different metaphor, but night and day kind of works, black and white. Um, the British came in as, I think the analogy was a, a, a British sergeant major. I mean, the British walked into Georgia at the end of the war because there was a vacuum. The Germans had been defeated. British forces came in, kind of marched into the offices of the president of the Georgian Republic, Jordania, and announced, you know, we are now here. We're your new masters. We're going to give you orders. It was a completely different uh, approach to what the, George, the Germans had done, and the Georgians needed to be taught a lesson about this. They were not allowed to behave that way. And if I recall, Jordania did not particularly appreciate this attitude, correct? Yeah, he basically said to the, the, the British officer who came into his office, he, he chided him and said, you know, you understand I'm the president of a sovereign republic here, you know, get out. And the, the British officer returned, I think several hours later, apologetically and did it again. I mean, they really, the British were behaving as they tended to behave in much of the world as very arrogant. As, you know, they were imperialists and they were conquerors and they, they just won a world war. So they really had no mood to like deal with the little tiny states. And they were quite ambivalent about Georgia at all levels. But the Georgians very quickly made it clear to them they, they were to behave like the Germans. And in the end, they, they got it and they, they were better behaved than the way they started. And they had to understand Georgia was a sovereign republic. It ran its own foreign policy and domestic policy, the British were there as its guests. And they did eventually understand this. I got the impression though, that they did not very much respect Georgian sovereignty. Uh, they did. The problem they had with Georgia, the biggest problem, was the British, um, unlike the Germans, the British were playing a major role in the Russian Civil War. And the British were backing the, the various white armies. And it means in the south of Russia, they were backing Denikin, who was um, more interested in, in fighting the Georgians, for example, because they were easier to beat than fighting the Red Army. He'd never accepted Georgian independence, and his troops were constantly engaged in border skirmishes with the Georgians. And the British found themselves not on the side of the Georgians, generally, on those issues. And and that, that was a major uh, battle we're having with the Georgians. Yeah, I know a lot of people tend to forget about Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War. The Americans, the Japanese, the British, the French all sent troops um, and were determined to strangle Bolshevism in its cradle. Why did the British work with the Social Democrats in Georgia? Well, they didn't have much of a choice. I mean, they weren't going to overthrow the Georgian government. It wasn't hostile to the British. Unlike the Bolsheviks who were announcing every five minutes they were going to overthrow the British Empire, the Georgians said nothing like that. The Georgians were quite reasonable. They were perfectly happy to be a small independent state. They had no ambitions on the British Empire. So the British interest in Georgia was just was preserving it as a, um, 
a non-Bolshevik state. They, you know, Georgia was clearly not going to be part of the Soviet Union. So the British were happy about that. But in a clash between the white Russian armies, the volunteers of Denikin, and the Georgians, the British were very clearly on Denikin's side. And it's an important point because when the Bolsheviks tried to justify their eventual invasion of Georgia, um, they would argue that the Georgians were tools of the British Empire, and they were, and they were allies of Denikin. And this completely ignored all the fighting that had gone on. And in particular, when the British um, discussed among themselves, and I found the documentation in the National Archives here in London, discussed whether British ships could open fire on Georgian troops if they were getting in the way of the, these white Russian armies. So the British were clearly taking sides against Georgia when Georgia was fighting Russians. Well, they were but bankrolling Denikin, weren't they? They absolutely were bankrolling Denikin, and they were not bankrolling Georgia at, at all. I should add that the, the role of the Allied armies in the Russian Civil War is more complicated than the way the Bolsheviks portrayed it. The Bolsheviks spoke about you know, all these thousands of Allied troops encircling them on all sides trying to crush them. But it wasn't entirely – it wasn't as simple as that. We know the British troops who landed in the north of Russia, Murmansk and uh, Archangel, were, were there primarily to – as part of the, the First World War, they were trying to prevent the Germans from getting uh, access to these ports and to the materials there. We know the Americans played the role in Siberia of restraining the Japanese who were trying to seize territory, they, which they did successfully. Uh, the various Allied forces had different interests. The only ones who were absolutely committed to overthrowing the Bolsheviks and were willing to send forces to do that were the French. Although I do think that the British did run their own Bolshevik concentration camps in the north. I think BBC recently ran an article on that. The, 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 they did, but they also, at the same time that they were landing troops in the north of Russia and were uh, appearing to fight the Bolsheviks, at the same time they had emissaries in Moscow trying to make deals with the Bolshevik leadership. So they, they were playing a, quite a complex game in, in, in Russia. They, their, their main aim, what united whatever they were trying to do, they were trying to win the war against Germany. This was their, their, their main goal. If the Russians would have fought the Germans, they would have supported any Russian government, including Lenin's, had they fought the Germans. So their main goal was not to overthrow Bolshevism because they saw it as a left-wing threat of some kind. Their main goal was if Lenin was pulling Russia out of the war, they were going to get rid of Lenin. If Lenin was prepared to fight against the Germans, they would back Lenin. Well, and of course, Lenin could not continue the war. That was the death knell for the provisional government. And I don't think he had any interest in continuing it. What was the Georgian social democratic position in regards to the war? And they had a complicated, first of all, the Georgian social democratic leadership was divided, some, like, like all the Mensheviks in Russia. Uh, some of them supported the war. They were called defensists. Um, others opposed the war. Once the provisional government had come into power, the leading Georgian figures who were actually not living in Georgia. They were already living in, in Petrograd and they were part of the provisional government. They did support the continuation of the war, which was a war of revolutionary defense in their view at that time. Georgia itself had no role to play in the war. When, once Georgia had separated itself from Russia, it was just trying to defend its own borders against the Turks and anybody else who tried to invade them. They had no interest in being involved in the war. But what, what was interesting and kind of ironic was that one of the things that led Georgia to break with Russia was the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which ended the war and which allowed the Germans to come in and seize vast territories of Russia in exchange for peace. And the Georgians had their territory, their borders were redrawn in this treaty, and they did not recognize that. They were not represented in those negotiations. So they, they, quite, they were quite angry at the Russians for giving away all these territories. But when, when it was their turn to negotiate with the Germans and the Turks, they then gave away the same territories. So their, their excuse for independence actually 
was a bit of an excuse. They, they were compelled, just as the Russians were compelled, to make massive concessions to the victorious uh, central powers. You also talk, though, about sort of inter-Caucasian feuds that erupt at the same time between the newly formed Azerbaijani, Armenian, and Georgian governments. Yeah, there was even the, the Mountaineers Republics to the north of them. There were tons of these things. And there were little mini-republics within. I mean, Georgia had, there was a, a republic in Ajara, near, near the port city of Batumi. Um, and, of course, the Abkhazians and the South Ossetians, who we're familiar with today, Try to create autonomous regions or little local governments. The Caucasus was always like this. It was always divided. There were many, many nationalities and languages spoken. Um, the Armenians did start a, a fairly major war with the Georgians early on. Uh, I thought there was really no question in the historical record when it happened. The Armenians had attacked Georgia as part of a, this idea they had that the Allies had just won the war that the, the British and the Americans adored them. They considered them victims of the Turks of, of, of that terrible genocide and that everybody would, support, would uh, support them. And of course, the British did nothing to support them when the war was over. And the Armenians foolishly attacked the Georgians thinking they could seize some territories. The Georgians did successfully defend themselves. And there was always that tension and it was used later by the Bolsheviks, the, 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 all the various tensions of the Abkhazians and Ossetians and Armenians and the Azeris were used by, by the Bolsheviks as they had been used by the Russians before uh, as part of their foreign policy to divide and rule in the Caucasus. Would you like to explain some of these tensions for people who may be not familiar with these various ethnic groups? I know Armenians and Georgians are both Christian and the Azerbaijani people are Muslim. Did yes. that cause any issues? First of all, you know, it, it's, it's more complicated than that. There's a, a wonderful novel that's considered the national novel of Azerbaijan called Ali and Nino. I don't know if you know it, but it's... it's no, I'm reason. not up on Azerbaijani, not up on Azerbaijani literature. It was actually made into a, a, apparently a fairly bad Hollywood film a couple of years ago. But Ali and Nino is a Romeo and Juliet story set in Baku in the years leading up to the revolution. And it's a story of a Georgian princess and an Azeri prince and, and their relationship. Because cities like Baku and Tbilisi, Tiflis then, were multi-ethnic cities. So in, in Tiflis, the Armenians were... The entire middle class of the city was Armenian, ethnically Armenian. Uh, so George was a multi-ethnic country, and the Armenians played a, a complex role there in their society. Um, even today, one of the stranger things is George's relationship with Armenia is still not very good, and its relationship with Azerbaijan is excellent, even though Azerbaijan is the Muslim country and Armenia is the Christian one. The, the Armenians have always been very close to the Russians. The Russians are their protectors or historically been their protectors. So I think that they're, they've been closer to Russia and less close to Georgia over the years. So is it mostly territorial conflict or ethnic conflict, class conflict? What tends to uh, be the root what, there? What, it's, it's all. The class conflict was a big part of it at that time. The Armenians were, were the middle class in, in, um, in, in Tbilisi. And they played the role that, that, that Jewish communities played in other parts of the Russian Empire where they were they were hated for being urban and for being successful. And, uh, and, and the Armenians, the Armenian leadership at that time made some colossal errors, really misunderstood the ba balance of forces, you know, thought they could take on the Turks and the Georgians and, and that the Russians or the British would come and help them, which they didn't. So it was a, and these problems persist. I mean, even now, even if you know nothing at all about the Caucasus region, you may know that Armenia and Azerbaijan have a, a what's called a frozen conflict. There's a, an area called Nagorno-Karabakh which is disputed by, by both countries, and they periodically fight over it. And we know that Russia occupies a large part of Georgia, the two areas of Abkhazia in the west 
and South Ossetia, kind of the middle the of the country. The Russians claim that those are independent states they are simply protecting. Yes, those independent states that are recognized by Russia and one or two of, of, their, of their allies in the world. They're, they're, they're not, no one, I mean, no, no block of countries, certainly not the United Nations, accepts those are independent countries. And they never were. And the Russians have been doing this since Tsarist times. And in my book, I go into some detail about Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which even then were being used by the Russians to divide and, and weaken Georgia. So would you like to explain those conflicts in Abkhazia and South Ossetia and how those conflicts began and what the difference maybe is between Georgians, Ossetians, and Abkhazians? Yeah, the Georgians would say that they're all Georgians, that, that, that all these um, various ethnic groups are part of Georgia, and this is Georgian territory, and Georgia is a, is a multi-ethnic society. The Georgian constitution, which was drafted by this social democratic government, gave autonomy to all these various ethnic groups and recognized no national or racial differences. All, all citizens, Abkhazians, ethnic Georgians, Jews, Armenians, who lived in Georgia were Georgian citizens. So their aspiration was to create a, you know, a very diverse, decent society. It didn't entirely work out, but it's a complicated story. The, the Abkhazians initially invited the Georgians in at the very beginning of the revolutionary period to help them kick out invading Russians. Um, then the Russians you know, persuaded some Abkhazians that the Georgians were actually invaders. And so some Abkhazians switched sides. So the Abkhazian population was divided then. You did note that the Georgians did actually do some unpleasant things to the Abkhazians? They, they, they may well have. They did very unpleasant things to the Ossetians, for sure. There was a very bitter ethnic conflict going on, and all sides were carrying out atrocities to one degree or another. It's not clear that the atrocities attributed to the Georgians in those conflicts were as terrible as they've been portrayed by the Bolshevik propagandists, but they were bad. There's no question the Georgians were brutal in their attempts to suppress some, you know, the Abkhazians, but particularly the Ossetians. And by Bolshevik propagandists, you mean Trotsky? I mean, Trotsky and everyone who followed him, and much less well-known people. There's, there were a number of pamphlets that were published, of which Trotsky's was the most famous. But yes, Trotsky harps, harps on this theme. I know that a lot of times Trotsky is used as a historical source, and in some ways he is, but he's not a historian. He really is a propagandist and a Marxist at heart. Yes, and, and, and this, I mean, the story of his book is an extraordinary one. If I can go into some little bit of detail here, Trotsky was the head of the Red Army when, when the Red Army invaded Georgia. Now, he didn't know anything about it. He was on in the Urals somewhere. It happened behind his back, and we have documentary evidence of him sending telegrams to Moscow asking, does anyone have any details on this invasion? Who ordered it? But once the invasion of Georgia had happened and Georgia was Sovietized, Trotsky felt this kind of loyalty to the Bolshevik party and the Bolshevik government that if it happened, it had to be defended. And nobody was, Stalin was certainly not going to write a book defending it. Stalin was barely politically literate. Trotsky was going to write a brilliant defense of this terrible invasion of Georgia. So he wrote stuff that, that was eventually adopted, you know, that became the Soviet line for decades, that the Georgians were brutal in their repression of the Akhazians, that the Georgians were tools of British imperialism, and, and, and so on. It was, a, it was a nasty book, and it was maybe the worst book Trotsky ever wrote. I have a lot of respect for Trotsky, and he wrote some brilliant books. This is not one of them. It's interesting that he felt loyalty to the Bolsheviks because he himself was not a Bolshevik up until 1917, and he quickly fell out of favor with a large number of the Bolsheviks, including Stalin, Bukharin, and others. Yeah, he was a latecomer to the party. I mean, he didn't join the party until, I think, July 1917. But once he joined, 
there was no one more loyal. And his loyalty became weird because it became clear by the mid-1920s that he was not welcome in that party at all. The party turned on him. Um, Stalin had the support of basically all the other factions against Trotsky at, at certain points. And yet he remained slavishly loyal to the party. I think he also had a kind of a sense of ministerial or governmental responsibility. The army he commanded had invaded Georgia. He wasn't going to say, well, I didn't know anything about this, like Stalin's decision. That would imply that he had no control over the army, which is he didn't, would never agree to that. And uh, Lenin, by the way, did the same thing. Lenin also apparently was not aware of the decision to invade Georgia until it had happened. And then once it happened, he defended it. I'm actually not surprised by that. Uh, everything I've ever seen on Soviet and Bolshevik administrations seems to show that they had very minimal control in a lot of instances from Moscow. Uh, orders weren't implemented or they were implemented behind their back or they were implemented in ways that didn't make sense or that only benefited locals. So who exactly gave the orders to invade Georgia? Was it Stalin or was it just something the local commanders on the ground decided? Oh, no, it's not the local commanders on the ground at all. This was a coordinated well-planned effort. Uh, you know, the, the, first of all, the, the, the Georgians and Russians had been at odds with each other during the entire period of Georgian independence. And the local Communist Party in Georgia, tiny though it was, made two attempts at coup d'etats, both of which were miserable failures. And in May 1920, in Moscow, a peace treaty was signed between the Russian Federation and Georgia, where the Russians basically said, okay, we're done. We're not going to try to invade you, overthrow you. We accept that you're, in, you know, you can stay an independent Menshevik state, whatever. But we want you to legalize the Communist Party, let it pull out of the underground. And we want to have a big embassy in, in Tbilisi, which they got. And from that moment in May 1920 until the Red Army invaded in February 1921, I guess nine months later, they plotted and schemed and organized and prepared for this invasion. So the invasion was not a spontaneous thing by any means. There were large Soviet armies poured in from all sides, from Armenia, Azerbaijan, and along the, the uh, Black Sea coast. It's a well-planned invasion. Stalin certainly had a hand in it, even though we have, again, memos from Lenin um, saying Stalin and I need to find out who ordered this. Like Stalin is telling Lenin he knows nothing about it. But it's his cronies, his Caucasian Bolshevik cronies, friends of his who were loyal to him all through the Years of the regime. So people like Ojana Kinsey? Exactly him. He would he was the, the sort of the commander on the ground. But it was no question it was inspired by Stalin. Stalin detested the Georgian Menshevik leadership. He detested the idea that his own homeland, everyone knew he was Georgian. His own homeland was in the hands of the hated Mensheviks. He couldn't stomach that. So he desperately wanted this this uh, chapter to be closed. It was a personal decision and Ojana Kinsey was certainly uh, his main henchman on this one. Well, Stalin also tended to get treated as sort of the token non-Russian. He was made ministry of, Minister of Minority Affairs. He was asked to write on uh, national minority questions simply by virtue of being non-Russian. So I'm sure it was always you know, in his face that he was not really part of it. Yes, he, you know, he, was, he was the Commissar of Nationalities, which is one of the very few posts in the new cabinet, the Soviet of People's Commissars, one of the very few posts that didn't exist, didn't have a parallel in the Tsarist government. It was a totally new concept. You know, the book he wrote about the national question, is, it's disputed whether he actually wrote the book. It's sort of the one book he wrote before he became a, a commissar, whereas people like Trotsky were knocking off books, you know, every Thursday afternoon. Stalin wrote one very short book, and it is reason to believe he didn't even write it. But Lenin wanted him, being the Georgian, to be the expert in these questions. So yes, it was absolutely in his face that he was Georgian. And he was, 
his his record in Georgia was not a good one. He never built the Bolshevik movement there. The local Mensheviks detested him, and there were there were great suspicions about him. There was a widespread belief he was a police agent. He hated the regime in Georgia and was desperate to see it overthrown. So let's talk a little bit about the internal Georgian policies. We've talked about most of their foreign policies. What did the Georgian Social Democrats do within Georgia, and how was that revolutionary? Yeah, and this for me is the most interesting thing. I mean, Georgian foreign policy and the defense policy is, is interesting, but it's not unique. What was unique about Georgia were two things. First, unlike the Bolsheviks, they established a multi-party system and free elections from the very beginning. Even the Bolsheviks, who were plotting and scheming to overthrow them all the time, had relative freedom of movement during the entire period of independence. But all the other parties, and there were plenty of other parties, were free to compete, argue with them, and so on. And they were free within their own party to argue and dispute, while the Bolsheviks were even crushing internal dissent in their own party. So that, that political freedom, that sh- they showed you could create a socialist society with political freedom and respect for human rights. And that, to me, was the single most important thing they did. But at the time, the most important thing they were doing was their land reform, which was radically different from what the Bolsheviks were doing in Russia. Well, the and Bolsheviks they, yeah. didn't really do land reform. They basically legalized what the peasants had already done because they couldn't undo it, and they knew that that would piss the peasants off. The peasants redistributed the land themselves. Well, there was that, but also the Bolsheviks took the view that um, the cities needed to be fed, and the peasants were not giving up their their grain. Therefore, they sent out you know armed detachments of workers into the countryside outside of the major cities, and seized grain from the peasants, provoking these conflicts and peasant rebellions and all, all the horrors of a period with, with famine and hunger and so on, none of which happened in Georgia. None of it. The Georgians acknowledged very quickly the right of the peasants to own their own land, made no attempt to collectivize land, which the Bolsheviks did initially try to do. The, there was, this was a huge debate that had gone on for many years in, in the Social Democratic Party before the revolution, what to do with the land. The Mensheviks were of the view that the peasants should have the land, whereas Bolsheviks were more keen on some form of collective ownership of land. So there was no war between the countryside and the cities. And that was the gigantic achievement that meant that daily life for people in Georgia was better. They weren't hungry the way they would have been hungry in, in Russian cities at that time. And so you also talk a little bit about the trade union and the cooperative movements. How are they important for internal Georgian policies? They're massively important, particularly the trade unions, because uh, I'm a trade unionist myself. And we, we would say that you could measure a society, how decent it is, how much you want to live there by how strong the unions are. But the fact is when, when communism began to implode and communist regimes, communist regimes finally began to fall, it was triggered by the rise of an independent trade union movement in Poland. It's very important that working people have their own institutions to defend themselves, even if you believe that those countries were somehow workers' states, which they weren't. Even if they were, workers still needed independent mechanisms of self-defense. In Russia, that wasn't happening, and Trotsky was a big advocate of getting rid of the unions. There was no need for them after the revolution. Georgia had strong, independent unions that had the right to strike, which was not the case in Russia anymore, and which pressured the government to make concessions to them and so on. So they kept those independent unions up until the very last day of independence. It was a big difference between them them and and Russia. Well, Trotsky moved to militarize labor, did he not, to impose basically the same discipline he had in the Red Army on workers and introduce things like Subotniki, these forced labor days without pay? Yes. It was, one again, one of the – I said I admire Trotsky a lot, but all I can think of is awful examples of things he wrote. He wrote these horrible things and said horrible things about – Unions. He basically justified, historically justified, 
um, slave labor. Uh, as he said, you know, there were, there were times in history when slave labor was a progressive thing. We have to admit this, comrades. Shocking stuff to say and to believe. He considered trade unions to be a useless talking shop, totally unnecessary. And Trotsky, because he was so successful as a Red Army commander, I mean, he did defeat the White Armies. He was a terrific general, really successful in winning the Civil War. But he was, he was the carpenter. He's every solution. Every solution to every problem is a hammer. Mm-hmm. You know, he believed the militarization will work for the army, so militarization will work for the, uh, the economy. No one, by the way, agreed with him, and his positions were not adopted. So uh, the trade unions in Georgia remained independent, but they were very heavily Menshevik, were they not? Yes, I, it was a big overlap between the membership of the Menshevik party and the membership of the unions. The me- membership of the party, curiously enough, this is almost unheard of in the world, was larger than the membership of the unions because the party included people such as the middle class or the peasants who couldn't join trade unions. But the unions and the, and the elite government worked together very closely, and they created a, a, a kind of um, a wages board together with employers and government, which regulated wages, guaranteed wages would meet, the rise, meet inflation, that workers would get subsidized basic goods like salt and bread and so on, oil. And they, they kept workers' living standards okay at a time when, as I said, there was starvation in Russia. Although the Bolsheviks did try and keep workers' wages high at the expense of the peasantry. Well, high relatively, uh, you know, trying to keep basic food goods, allowing rations of certain bread, food items. And even up through the 1930s and even through the Second World War, industrial workers were always a privileged class within Russia. They were privileged in what they were given, but they were not privileged in the sense that they had no political control over their government. I mean, we know that by, by 1919, 1920, Whenever there were free elections in urban Soviets or trade unions, the Bolsheviks were losing those elections badly, often to Mensheviks and, and to the remnants of the SR party. The Bolsheviks were declining in popularity and were putting an end to these kinds of elections because they were not, they were not going to concede power. The Mensheviks remained hugely popular in the Georgian unions, worked together with them. There was never a period when suddenly there was big support for the Bolsheviks or any, any other party in those unions. So the Mensheviks remained a party where not just they weren't just giving the workers you know, bread and salt and cooking oil, they were giving them a voice in running their own country. This was the key difference between them and what the Bolsheviks were doing. How important was the Georgian working class? Because Georgia was relatively uh, underdeveloped, was it not? It, it was underdeveloped, and the, and the peasant class was much larger than the urban, urban working class, as it was throughout Russia. So it was, in a sense, no different from Russia. The urban, urban working class and the urban middle class were important because they were the national leaders, right? They were the people who were going to run the country and set the tone, as was the case inside Russia as well. But yes, it was quite a small urban working class. It wasn't devastated in the way the ones were in Russia because they, they were not involved in the civil war. You know, many Russian workers died in the civil war. Many Russian workers died of starvation during the, the famines and, and so forth. That didn't happen to the Georgian working class. They remained more or less stable throughout the period of those three years of independence. And they ran the country. I mean, there was their government and they set the tone. You also talk about the formation of producers and consumers cooperatives. How important do you think those were? Well, that was, that was interesting because when I was researching the book, I hadn't been aware of how hostile most Marxists historically had been to the cooperative movement. Marx personally was sympathetic, but there was a kind of consensus in, in the Marxist parties at that time that cooperatives were like a... Um, a diversion from the real fight. And that some even said the, the whole point of cooperatives is to finance our parties. They have no other role. It's kind of really quite dismissive of the cooperative movement. In Georgia, the cooperatives were a big part of the revolution. And they grew and grew you know, month on month throughout all those three years. And by the end, 
they were talking about the cooperatives in certain sectors of the economy had essentially replaced private ownership without actually banning private ownership or imposing some kind of socialist order. A kind of democratic socialist order in the economy was already emerging due to the growth of these very successful cooperatives. So how did uh, various socialist leaders from across Europe view the Georgian experience? They loved it, and they all knew about it. And this is one of the strange things that I came upon in my research, that Georgia was very well known at the time. And the leadership of the Social Democratic and Labour parties across Europe were invited by the Georgians to come for a visit in 1920. And a whole bunch of exceptionally famous ones, including Ramsay MacDonald, who later became the first British Labour Prime Minister, and Karl Kautsky, who was the theoretical leader of not just German social democracy, but European social democracy, and a number of other quite prominent ones all came to Georgia on a visit. And they loved what they saw, and they talked about it being an alternative model of socialism to what was happening in Russia. Why do you think the Georgian experience has been minimized in history? Is it due to Cold War rhetoric and a focus on Bolshevism? It's due in part, I mean, in part I blame the Social Democrats themselves in Europe, that, that once Georgia was crushed, its independence you know, ended, and this really happened in 1924 when they rose up in rebellion and couldn't kick the Russians out. Georgia was forgotten. They simply, you know, people began to accept, just as they accepted Russian rule, Soviet rule of many other countries, it just became a reality in the world. This was part of the Soviet Union. Nothing we can do about it. And no lessons there for us. And just move on. And the, of course, the Soviets did everything possible to, to make people forget, particularly make the Georgians forget what had actually happened in their country. But in that, they weren't entirely successful. So what is the role of Jordania and this um, experiment in modern Georgian political rhetoric? The Georgians, you know, when they emerged as a free country in 1991, they immediately an- uh, adopted the 1921 constitution of the Georgian Social Democrats. They adopted the flag of the Mensheviks. They made May 26th, which was the Independence Day in 1918, their national holiday. They seemed to be completely embracing the previous republic, which they called the first Georgian Republic. But the reality was more complicated than that. The people who came to power in the 1990s were not social democrats. And gradually, Georgia has become a much more of a, a right-wing, neoliberal, you know, capitalist democracy. It's a very pleasant place to visit, but it's not a social democracy. It's not what the Mensheviks had in mind. Do you blame a lot of that on Saakashvili and his nationalist rhetoric? I blame it on all of them, because those who preceded Saakashvili paved the way for him. Saakashvili was, was a right-wing neoliberal, and it's good that he's gone. The Georgian unions had a terrible relationship with him. They're having a pretty bad relationship with his successor as well, so it doesn't really matter, it seems, who's in power. Uh, the Georgian unions are quite weak. The working class is not well-organized. Um, it's not what the Mensheviks imagined. And yet, and yet, among young Georgians and students, there's tremendous interest in this period, and they're, they're linking it to the, the fight of working people in Georgia for their rights. So there is a possibility of something like a Menshevik movement re-emerging in Georgia among the young people. So what do you think the legacy of this experiment in Jordania's Mensheviks are going to be? The legacy is they proved that there was another way was possible, that what happened in Russia, in an impoverished country where most people are peasants during a world war, all these horrible things happened, didn't have to be that way. That Menshevism was an alternative, that it could take power and run a country along different lines. And it's the idea that there was an alternative, that, that, that it didn't have to be the way Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin eventually made it, offers the hope that democratic socialism is a possibility. Okay, so I, we've been talking for a while now. I think I've taken up a fair amount of your time. Is there anything that we 
missed during this conversation that you would like to add or touch on from your book? Um, not so much. I'm just hoping that the book is coming out in, in Georgian in February. I'm very excited about that. I'll be going back to Georgia to help launch it. And we're hoping to have a Russian edition next year as well. So I think for the Georgians and Russians, this is a part of their history they have to learn. That is something I have noticed is that a lot of scholarship that comes out in English never makes it translated back into the native tongue. So it almost disappears from the national rhetoric. I noticed that with uh, Soviet era scholarship, uh, people that write yes. things in English, it just never makes it back to the Russians. Well, my, my publisher in Georgia actually just published last year a book that came out in the late 1940s in America, written in, in English about the whole uh, Caucasus region at that time. She couldn't find anything in Georgian, so I had this translated from the English to the Georgian. And so this is she's very excited that it's now a new work focusing only on Georgia, because there really isn't enough scholarship in their own languages. Yeah, I retained the publishing rights for Russian for my book for the same reason, because I think that the the language barrier is often a big problem in modern academic literature. Yes, it is. So this sounds like a really great project. I found your book quite readable. I think maybe it's because you're a journalist, not a historian. You make it very accessible and interesting. I found it to be a very quick read as opposed to the usual sort of academic slog. So I think that's very successful. Thank you very much. Who is your intended audience? Is this for mainly the general reader? Is this for academics or... It's, abs- it's absolutely not aimed at academics, though I'm happy they, they'll read it. it. It's aimed at people who are engaged in the politics. I'm thinking particularly of people like in the U.S. who would, would have supported Bernie Sanders, who want a better world, uh, who see themselves as part of, of a left but don't entirely understand the history of that left. I think it's for everyone who thinks about the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviks tries to understand what went wrong and could there have been, a, could there have been another way. It's, it's for the left, so people like me, and, so, and it's for a younger generation of people like me. So Americans realize socialism isn't a dirty word? Well, it's taken, taken a few decades, but, but I mean, Bernie Sanders got 45% of the delegates in the Democratic Convention running openly as a democratic socialist. That's extraordinary. That could never have happened 20 or 30 years ago. I don't think it could have happened 10 years ago. I, I, I agree. So I think, that, I think that Bernie gets this, but I think that his supporters a clueless what is the history here. And my book will contribute to them understanding that there is a history and democratic socialism is a possibility. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.